Hello, Devil Spawn and Mysterious Monoliths and all the ships at sea, and welcome to A Very Good Year, the movie podcast where we invite a guest to pick their favorite year of movies and talk to us about that year. I'm your host, Jason Bailey, and across the mic and across the country from me is my co-host, Michael Hull. Our guest today is a fantastic film critic. You may have read his reviews at Rolling Stone, where he is chief film critic and senior editor. He's the former film editor of Time Out New York, and his work has been published in the New York Times Magazine, The Village Voice, Esquire Spin, New York Daily News, San Francisco Bay Guardian, Movie Maker, Nashville Weekly, and numerous other publications. Gang, let's have a drink with David Fear. Hi, Dave. Oh, I bet you say that to all the ladies. Don't you? <laughs> it's such a pleasure to, to be in your home. I should should mention we as you can tell from the screenshots and as you'll see from this one we typically do these you know uh over the internet with everyone in a different location but uh dave is nice and close out in park slope brooklyn so i trekked out to to do this one in person because he's just such a such a swell dude thank you i have to say this is a this is a dream come true i've been waiting to get this magic phone call <laughs> given that i'm such a fan of the show and Aww. uh and so many other absolutely wonderful critics who I love and admire have been on and discussed discussed years that I have fondness for and mm-hmm. convinced me of years that I didn't have so much fondness for that I should give them a second chance. Hello, 1978. <laughs> here, here. You're not dead to me anymore. <laughs> Uh, so yeah, this is a, it's such a pleasure. I'm so happy to be here. Well, we are really pleased to have you. Uh, let's get right to it. What year did you choose uh, to talk to us about and why? So I am talking to... I'm talking to you guys about 1968 for a number of reasons. Okay. Uh, The first one is that 1968 has always been one of those years that has absolutely fascinated me. And I think it it fascinates me in the same way that I am an amateur history buff. Okay. Um, And I love reading about, I love reading about 20th century history. And I love reading about the back half of 20th century history and uh, it also fascinates me in the same way that car wrecks on the side of highways fascinate me. <laughs> because there's a kind of rubbernecking quality to 1968 that when you look back on it, I am completely surprised, somewhat amazed and very much in awe of the fact that we still have a republic right. after every single thing that happened. I mean, this is a year... This is a year that starts off on the high point of the Children's Crusade. Right. Uh, where you find all these young people, this entire generation has kind of found numerous things to coalesce behind and really start to kind of take to the streets and prove that student revolt is going to be, in many ways, a very effective way of protest and in, in many ways going to test the limits of what you can do for civic sure. protests. Uh, and then it also has the Tet Offensive, right. in which uh, suddenly the Vietnam War takes this hard left turn Hard left is maybe a bad phrase to use here. <laughs> it takes a takes a very unfortunate downward turn yeah. and gets to the point. I mean, it, it's, it shakes confidence in the American experiment of warfare that is going on uh, in the East to the point where Walter Cronkite leaves his desk, goes out in the field, sees what's happening, and then comes back and tells him the, the voice of America, mm-hmm. the voice of dad mm-hmm. behind his desk says that the Vietnam War is unwinnable. Uh Race riots are happening. Uh, this is a year in which both Martin Luther King and Robert F. Kennedy are assassinated. There are riots. There are strikes. This is when the generation gap becomes a chasm. Right. This is when the counterculture and the silent majority, who I don't believe have been named at that point, but will soon be my future president, Nixon, who will be elected that year, 
this is when they really start kind of butting heads. It, the 68 Democratic Convention. Need I say more, Jason? Right, right. I mean, things fall apart and the center cannot hold. And the idea that somehow, somehow America uh, gets through this year, certainly not unscathed or unscarred, continues to fascinate me. And the second thing, the, the other reason, the, not, it's not just that the movies that are coming out in that year are playing against everything that's happening outside the theater. Right. It's also the fact that 68 becomes this incredibly interesting, very weird, very odd transition year. Very much so. Because you have the, what I like to call, what I now call the pictures at a revolution year, the mm-hmm. year prior, in which uh, you can feel the kind of studio system starting to come apart at the seams and uh, the counterculture is getting more of a voice in cinema and, and not just from the fringes, but really kind of, sneaking into the mainstream and then you've got 69 the next year which is midnight cowboy and easy rider that kind of serve as these two sort of death knells for for the not just the studio system but kind of the old ways of hollywood and then and then in the middle of this you've got 1968 in which you've got biker movies sitting next to elvis movies sitting next to yellow submarine and the planet of the apes right i mean you've got faces you've got uh, the Green Berets next to the Witchfinder General. Right. <laughs> you know, you've you've got Godzilla films and you've got spaghetti westerns, which have, are just starting to come. The 67 is kind of when the spaghetti westerns go into their Baroque period. Mm-hmm. And then 68 is when they really kind of start to use that as a springboard to go to places, which is like, I'm sure we'll talk about the Great Silence later. But, you know, it's uh, it's Skidoo. And Greetings, the first major film by Brian De Palma, and The Love Bug. Right. This is all in one year. Right. And it's because, um, as William Goldman famously said, nobody knows anything. Right. And so you have all of this kind of leftover stuff from the old days kind of meeting in the middle with the new freedoms. And it just becomes this kind of amazing hodgepodge. Um, it's also a year, I think, when like foreign cinema is doing really great. You get Golden a, you know, Swallow! Yeah. <laughs> oh my God. You get two films by Bergman. Right. You get uh, Godard making a movie about the Rolling Stones. Right. Um, you get Death Laid an Egg, which is easily the most surreal, fucked up, politicized giallo that you could ever want. Or not even want. I mean, I love the film, but it's funny how when you talk to people about Giallo and you mention Death Laid an Egg, it's like uh, it's like that egg is in the, it's like sulfuric egg is in the room with them. <laughs> Their noses crinkle a little bit. So yeah, I, it's just one of those years that um, I don't think it's one of the best years of filmmaking, but I do think it's one of the most interesting years of filmmaking, and one that really it holds up to a great scrutiny when you're kind of cracking everything open and looking inside and, and seeing how all this stuff kind of coalesced together. What what sort of personal significance does 1968 hold for you? Uh, I have to admit that I, uh, I'm i a few years out mm-hmm. from having witnessed 1968 firsthand mm-hmm. uh, in any way, shape, or form. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I, I will say as somebody, I mean, like like you, I hold an incredible, I hold an incredible huge place in my heart and a very large area of fascination in my brain for new Hollywood. Yeah. And as a child of the seventies, I was born in 71 and grew up going to a lot of drive-ins going to a lot of what you would consider. They weren't open 24 hours as Katie Reif just pointed out in her episode, but like what would now be considered grindhouses, Mm -hmm. Um, you know, things that showed like 
triple bills of kung fu films. Um, and my my mom would often take me to to go see films in a theater with her. I, there was one day when I would get out of school early, around fourth or fifth grade, and she would pick me up from school and we would go have lunch and then we would go see a movie or or sometimes a double feature. And this was the later part of the 70s when uh, I was seeing stuff at a, or like California Split or Same Time mm. Next Year or Coming Home uh, at, at a very early age. And so the reason I bring up the late 70s is because that gave me a taste for films that were slightly above my age range. And from there, I started to try and like work backwards as much as possible. I was uh, I was blessed, blessed, I tell you, <laughs> as being part of a generation in which VCRs were becoming consumer friendly mm-hmm. and you could actually purchase them mm-hmm. and video stores popped up and there were still repertory theaters. Mm-hmm. So it was the idea that you could, once I you know became old enough to like take a bus or once I had a car, I would go to these rep houses that were still open and I still was giving myself an education, you know, through, through uh, all the videotapes that I could find in a rental store that had been popping up in books that I had been right. reading about. And the late sixties, the early seventies, but really the late sixties were kind of where I sort of started to dig into once, uh, once I had my parents' signature on a video card and right. said I could rent whatever I wanted. Yep. Yes. Freedom. Free, free at sweet, last. Freedom. Free, sweet, sweet freedom. Free at last. And so things like, you know, some of the films we're just about to talk, like we're talking about, like I could remember seeing 2001, A Space Odyssey as a kid. And, you know, a kid weaned on Star Wars. So I was like, oh, a movie about space. And I was like, yeah. You know, where are the where are the laser battles? <laughs> Why is there, where are there cavemen in here? What's up with the huge baby? <laughs> And it really began to make me think differently at a very formative age about uh, about a lot of those things. And then there are also things like, you know, Yellow Submarine was a movie that I watched incessantly as a kid. I mm-hmm. loved it. It wasn't even that I loved the Beatles, per se, although I later <laughs> grew to love them. But it was really just just the kind of oddity of it. Yeah. I mean, have you watched Yellow Submarine? Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that movie is like, I would sooner give a kid LSD. <laughs> put them in front of yellow submarine now without any sort of, you know, right. any sort of prep. Yeah. Um, and it just, yeah, things like that. Like it, it really, it was a, it was this kind of, a lot of these movies hit me at a very formative age. And then when you start to go back and realize they're all kind of in the same year and the same, you know, not just the same time period, but the same 12 months, uh, you really start to be like, Oh yeah. Oh, this was a, this was a, a significant year in movies and a very significant year for me as a movie lover. Very much so. Okay, well, you have put together a really marvelous and eclectic top five for us. We're going to get to it in just a moment. Before we do, Mike's going to dig a little deeper into the sort of earth-shattering history that was happening uh, in 1968. Here's headlines. Uh, I think he just did the news and the the lightning round, so let's skip the Hollywood Minute, no? No? Okay. You got some more stuff. That was a killer start to this show. Yeah, no kidding. 1968 got off to a weird start when the Democratic People's Republic of Korea, better known as North Korea because it's not a democracy or a republic, captured the USS Pueblo in the Tsushima Strait. 
the body of water that separates Korea from Japan. One sailor was killed in the attack and 82 were taken prisoner. The best part of the story, the only good part really, is yeah. that when the sailors were put on camera to tell everyone how nice the North Koreans were being to them, they rolled their eyes a lot and flipped everyone the bird because the commies didn't know what it meant. Uh, <laughs> apparently they they caught a hell of a beating uh, when sure. uh, when the Koreans saw the, the, the gossip papers the next day, but it was yeah. funny at the time. USS Pueblo is still being held by North Korea and is part of their Victory War Museum and uh, as such has never actually been decommissioned by the United States. So it's the only uh, currently commissioned U.S. transport that we don't actually have access to. Wow. Right? Okay. Crazy. In 1968, yeah. Boeing Aircraft introduced the 747, the world's first jumbo jet, and things were going pretty good with it. Until a few years ago. Yeah. When some new guys tried to solve a hardware problem with software and have killed several hundred people as a result. They saved some money, though. Oh, well. Until they started paying off some of those death notices. Yeah. Uh, plenty of 747s fly over, all over the world every day, but the MAX line is still mostly grounded as of this recording. Also in 1968 was the famous Summer Olympics photo of American runners Tommy Smith and John Carlos on the medals podium with their heads bowed and their fists up. You know something I learned recently? Hmm. They wore black socks but no shoes, a symbol of black poverty. Which you never wow. see because in the photo it's like cropped yeah. right above their feet. Wow. Yeah. Also on the stand was white Australian runner Peter Norman who supported the action both before and after the games. Norman was favored to win gold in Munich 72, but he was never allowed to run for Australia again because he was too woke. <laughs> or whatever the 72 whatever. version of that was. Whatever the shitty 70s. I was think compassionate. Say. Yeah, there you go. That, there right. You go. Yeah. <laughs> right. That Imagine was the word. that. Yep. In other race news from 1968, the original Star Trek series aired an episode called Plato's Stepchildren, where the plucky Enterprise crew is enslaved by telecanadian by telecanadian. Is that a thing? Is that what you call people <laughs> sure, in what? Canada with ESP as telecanadians? There you Sorry, go. Sorry, I'll start that sentence over. Okay. The plucky Enterprise crew is enslaved by telekinetic Platonians, who then force Captain Kirk to make out Lieutenant Uhura, resulting in the first interracial kiss on network television. Wow. The story goes that execs at NBC made them film an alternate version with no kiss because they were scared of backlash, so Shatner apparently flubbed every single alternate take and forced <laughs> them to use the kiss, and that's the best William Shatner story I've ever heard. Pretty much. But, you know, the FBI killed Martin Luther King in 68, too, so let's not get too excited about that. All right, fair enough. All the race stuff. And finally, on Christmas Eve 1968, astronauts Jim Lovell, Bill Anders, and Frank Borman became the first human beings to travel to another flying rock in the vast expanse of the universe when they orbited the moon ten times. They were the first humans to see the dark side of the moon and the first to take photos of the Earth where you could see the whole thing. And uh, there's actually... Combining this new segment with the intro we just did, they got a lot of telegrams when they got back. Mm -hmm. And apparently their favorite one was they got a telegram that said, thank you for saving 1968. Mm. That's a nice story, <laughs> right? Mm -hmm. you Shout see out now, to our little blue ball. You see now why I picked this year? Yes, I do. Very nice. That's headlines. Thank you, Mike. All right, David Fear, you ready to do a top five? Sure, let's go. All right, so uh, we decided we're going to do an alphabetical top five to avoid uh, ranking and that sort of thing. So alphabetically, what is the first movie on your top five for 1968? It is probably the least known mm -hmm. film on this list. Uh, 
although certainly certainly no less significant than the other ones. It's called Death by Hanging. It is by a Japanese filmmaker named uh, Nagisa Oshima. I grew up uh, with a very, a very deep, dedicated love to Japanese cinema, especially Japanese cinema of the you know mid twentieth century and the, you know the sixties when it really started to become an international thing and not just a national cinema mm -hmm. and began to kind of make its way over to the thing. I mean, I grew up as a kid in the seventies, as I mentioned before, and so there were a lot of, a lot of samurai movies in my in my diet and mm -hmm. you eventually get around to the Akira Kurosawa Samurai movies and that whets your appetite and then you start to kind of you keep going you start digging into other bits and pieces and uh, I mentioned this because you could see you could see a good deal of the work by most of the significant Japanese filmmakers at the time but Oshima was always one of those he was like the it was like the Holy Grail for me when I was growing up because you would read about these films that he had done and they sounded outrageous and crazy and mm. radical and politicized and funny, but in that really kind of sick joke kind of funny way. Mm -hmm. And they were impossible to find. Really? Yes. And then finally in the late 90s and very much in the early, the early to mid aughts, uh, his work started to go back into circulation and Death by Hanging was one of those movies that I'd heard about for ages and finally caught up with it. Um, oh, let me put it to you this way. Once upon a time, you could find ways of getting movies before they were in mm -hmm. sort of wider circulation. Mm -hmm. And I had come across a, a, let's call it a bootleg. Let's do. Uh, before Criterion had put out a really wonderful edition of it and was blown away by it. It was one of those movies where the movie that I'd had in my head for over a decade, having read about it, couldn't even remotely compare to the cracked vision that I was seeing <laughs> on the screen. Yeah, It starts off like a documentary, like a black and white documentary about uh, a man, a uh, man born in Japan, but of Korean descent, who is going to be executed uh, for a sexual assault that he has been convicted for. And for a good chunk of the first portion of the movie, it essentially plays like you're watching a documentary about, uh, about capital punishment in Japan in, mm -hmm. in the 1960s. And when it finally gets to the point in which this, this uh, man on death row is about to be hung, they pull the lever and the gallows open and the hangman's noose cracks and he's not dead. Right. And the rest of the film then becomes there's this wonderful writer Howard Hampton and he uses a phrase in his essay for the Criterion release where he calls it a metaphysical double jeopardy mm -hmm. in that they then decide they need to try and hang him again but can they hang him again is that even and this becomes this absurd bureaucratic back and forth and they finally they, and then they have to revive him to get him to a point where they can actually be able to be killed right quote unquote properly right and then he sort of awakes with no memory of why he's been, what his crime is. And so they then try to recreate the crime for him several times, and which actually ends up resulting in a death done by the guy. And it just becomes this thing that is, 
this crazy absurdist indictment of not just the government and not just, you know, Japanese law and order, but just society in general becomes this absolutely equal parts ridiculous and horrifying thing. And it's one of the things that I feel Oshima did best. Um, You know, everybody talks about him being the sort of the Jean-Luc Godard of Japanese cinema, which I understand. Like, I think that's actually, it's a great way of kind of introducing somebody to his work. But in a way, I feel like he's almost more radical than, than Godard was. I always kind of said that like Godard opened the door and then Oshima came in and decorated the room. Mm. And Death by Hanging, I think, is one of the greatest examples, not just one of his strongest films or one of the strongest films to come out in that era, but a great example of like what he does best and why like why when a lot of people have sort of they they look upon Japanese cinema from that era with such nostalgia, whereas this feels very modern and very urgent and very much like. It, it still shocks you in the yeah. same way that like Boonwell's movies still shock you. This was a first time watch for me. This was one of the two on your list that I had never seen before. Oh and I was not prepared for it. Like, Sorry. I was n- no, no, no. <laughs> in, in a great way. Just on a on an aesthetic level, when it begins and it's this very austere, black and white Japanese cinema. And, you know, you sort of go into it in that mind frame and then realize, oh, they're doing this. Uh, I was I just I didn't know where I had no idea from moment to moment where it was going to go I went in deliberately blind I didn't like read anything about it going in or anything like that and it is it it retains its power to shock with both the 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 sort of absurdity of the humor the their the willingness to be funny about this subject matter Mm -hmm. and then also what it's daring to say about humanity about authority yeah i mean it is it's a stunning piece of work but i think there's also like about 45 minutes i watched with my wife and about 45 minutes in i was like this is like a japanese 12 angry men this is the craziest sort of because you know there's all these dudes (laughs) and they're trying to figure out what to do and they're arguing and all this but by the end like it is not it's gone in a completely different universe and there's it's not of this earth there's so many things that i feel like were references that we would never be able to understand and, you know, but that there are so many things that we can understand. There are so many things that are mm-hmm. obviously relatable. But I really wish I, there was a way to know how he chose the order for the people to see the body. Because I feel like there had mm. to be some mm. sort of very specific choice around the order of, of how they saw it. And in the end, who still couldn't see it. Right. Mm -hmm. And there's things like that in there that like and maybe it's maybe we're supposed to ponder on it and try to like figure out sort of why that was. But I don't think so. I think that was intentional and just hard for us to know now. But mm-hmm. like the the movie is so full of things like that, that it's like, wait, is that about now or is that about then? Is that about mm-hmm. us or is that about them? You know, fantastic movie. Yeah. Yeah. Really excellent. Um, all right, Dave, what then is the next movie uh, alphabetically on your top five for 68? Alphabetically, the next movie is Lindsay Anderson's If. This is an English public school. This is where Britain raised its empire builders of yesterday and still trains its leaders of tomorrow. This is the unchanging English public school. This is where you still learn to play the game. 
In this world, you have to watch out for yourself and obey the rules, as in the world outside. But some people are born to break the rules. <laughs> this guy loves appointed social satire. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, you hear these stories about people who saw The Graduate mm-hmm. in 1967 when it was you know, still a first-run movie and how exciting it was to be in that audience, how galvanizing it felt, how it really felt like you, a youthful viewer, you were being represented on screen. And I can only imagine in the United Kingdom or elsewhere of being a viewer around that same age and seeing if Mm -hmm. in a theater in in its first run with a crowd. Um, I don't know that you would... (laughs) I, I have a feeling you would feel you were being represented on screen, but maybe not in a good way. Right. Uh, it is such a, it is such a divisive movie even to this day. Even though it couldn't have, on the surface, a more conservative storyline. It's a story about a bunch of boys in a British boarding school, and some of the upperclassmen have kind of taken on the cruelty of the establishment, let's call it, yeah. and are already kind of replicating that sort of have and have nots people with power versus those that don't uh, on their, on their, their younger, the younger classmen. And it's very much one of those movies in which the boarding school is the, you know, the microcosm of society. And then Lindsay Anderson being the astute critic that he was, nobody loved John Ford more. Nobody loved classic cinema more, but then nobody was more, uh, attuned to what was happening in Britain at the time. And I think happening in British cinema at the time, especially coming in kind of the post Tony Richardson era, right. the new freedoms of the British cinema at that time and the angry young man stuff that John Osborne was doing and all of that kind of coalescing into this weird sort of surreal, these surreal elements that are thread throughout the entire film, but really kind of culminate in the last act, yeah. which I apologize if this is a spoiler for anybody uh, results in a massacre. Yeah. But here's the thing. How real is that massacre? And then how real is that reality we've been watching? Right. And then how real is our own reality, Jason? Do you see how far (laughs) we're falling down the wormhole here? Yes, I do. Uh, Again, this was another one of those films where, um, it was funny when you guys asked me to do a top five of the year, it was a tough choice because there are a lot of things I would have, a lot of idiosyncratic stuff I would have put in and a lot of stuff that would have seemed, you know, seems obvious in retrospect. Of course, you know, 68, of course you're going to put that film in. But uh, if it was one of those things where before I put it in, I went back and watched it. I don't think I'd seen it in about 15, maybe 20 years. Mm. I've seen it a number of times, but I just don't think I'd seen it in, you know, in ages. It was one of those films where I can remember the first time I saw it on a kind of battered VHS in the early eighties. One of those films I've been reading about for years and finally got a chance to see it. And I felt the exact same way watching it now that I did then Hmm. there. You're tempted to laugh. You're tempted to gasp. You're tempted to kind of do a very slow Rudy clap. (laughs) Some of the sequences you're, you're, I'm still, I still look at Malcolm McDowell as one of the single most compelling charismatic screen performers of, of the history of the movies. And, This is really, this is really the film that kind of <laughs> introduces him as this, this beautiful young face of a generation, you know, a few years before that face gets some eyeliner <laughs> and, <laughs> and some false lashes and then a derby is put on it. 
and becomes, you know, the handsome face of toxic juvenile delinquency. But yeah, yeah, I think if it's just one of those movies where uh, it, it, it still makes me feel a lot of films on this list make me feel this. But if in particular makes me feel that like there 68 was a moment in which all these possibilities for cinema were opening up all these routes that had been closed off. You can't do this. No, that no longer applied in so many respects. And when you watch if you realize, you know, there's no if about it. This film is really it's it's breaking new ground in very significant ways. Yeah. Yeah. This was my other first time watch. This again had just oh one I'd been meaning to see forever. I feel like uh, I feel like I'm being part of your film education here. Yes. No, it's so great. Happy, it's great. No, it's, it's I've said it before. It's one of the joys of doing the show is I finally have an excuse to watch things I've been meaning to see forever. And this, uh, you know, I I'd sort of vaguely heard, but I didn't know exactly where it was going. And that and and it too has that power to shock because especially even this much later where the boarding school movie has become mm-hmm. such a sort of standard sub genre of the coming of age drama. Mm-hmm. We've seen a lot of boarding school movies and a lot that deal with class and yes. the British class system in particular. Yeah. And then sort of ones that transpose that to America and deal, deal with it here and in, in its own way. It's not that what happens at the end comes out of nowhere, but you just don't expect a movie to take that kind of a big swing anymore no and and not only that but to have it actually to have something that seems so disparate as we talk about it or Mm -hmm. so disparate when you read on the page and then he brings out a machine gun Mm -hmm. and you know massacres an entire crowd of people who have shown up uh and then kind of realize that no this is the only way the film could have ended right in a way this makes perfect sense absolutely um and that you know that to me is why i still kind of go back to that film and i'm just like wow like how the fuck did he do this? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Is it more shocking then when it didn't happen or is it more shocking now when it does? That is a good question. I'd never seen this one. I had never seen before. This one was new to me. And, and, you know, as you're watching it, like that was this thing that sort of kept coming back to me is like, and now it feels more like an exploration of how that could happen and less like a, Oh my God, what the fuck is happening? Yeah, you know, it, it it becomes less of a fantasy and more of a film like Elephant, essentially, mm-hmm. where you start talking about the entire mm-hmm. social phenomena of mass shootings. Um, and the fact that it's so odd and dreamlike mm-hmm. and, you know, happening in a year that is so rife with violence all over the globe and violence being broadcast and televised and shown places mm-hmm. that it wasn't previously shown in a way just makes me think like it's almost like violence is in the air mm-hmm. and not so much the kind of thing of like, these are what causes mass shootings because there's no, I mean, you're right. It doesn't come out of nowhere, but it's also not the kind of thing where, Oh, there's a ticking time bomb and right. you know, something's going to happen or, Oh, this is, it's so obvious that these children are suffering from social alienation that they no longer, they feel numbed to, you know, Right. anything like remorse and this is why they would be able to go and do that there's there's none of that um i mean i can't say it doesn't occur to you as you're watching a film in which somebody takes out a machine gun on a on a university right. uh, on the roof of a university campus but even they seem surprised when they find the weapons mm-hmm. yes it's not like there's sort of, sort of sense in the movie when right. they find the weapons that you're like okay we've been sort of getting to this point even they seem surprised right. even they seem like Oh, what are we going to do now? Like, it's a sort of put up or shut up moment. Not like it was a plan. And, and yeah. And yet there's also not, there's also not the notion of, 
oh, we, we happen to have found these weapons. Now it's time to use them. Blood will run in the streets. Right. It almost becomes this this weird warped extension of the kind of cracked psyche that's happening all over the school and by extension by the, that generation. Yeah. Ooh. Tough picture, man. This was yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, well let's go for let's go for something a little lighter then. What's uh, what's what's the third alphabetical? Oh, Enough violence. Let's yeah. talk about a Sergio Leone Western. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so my, my third pick is Once Upon a Time in the West. Yeah. get older and uh, and keep returning to what is the unfortunately finite filmography of Sergio Leone mm-hmm. uh, I find that this one I, I keep coming back to this one and I keep coming back to this one for very specific reasons although for a long time it, it didn't it took me a while to kind of articulate why this movie was resonating with me so much mm-hmm. and then it finally occurred to me that it's the sort of perfect melding of a spaghetti Western and a traditional Western. Oh. In a way, it's yeah. like Sergio Leone yeah. coming coming close enough to making a kind of classical sort of John Ford style Western as he as he would ever get. Yeah. If you watch what um what people have dubbed the spaghetti westerns, it's all about tearing down the myth of the Western. Mm-hmm. You know, everybody wears black hats. Everybody's grubby. No one's bathed in a financial quarter. <laughs> right. Uh, and the only thing, you know, the only thing that speaks louder than gold is lead. Right. And he was great at making those movies and he was, you know, he was great at making epic movies. The good, the bad, and the ugly really is his attempt to make like this massive epic Western. But once upon a time in the West, even from the title alone is his attempt to make uh, a mythological yeah. Western to actually kind of, it's a weird kind of have your pasta and eat it too situation where you have like you're making a, a Western that's filled with this kind of frontier mythology while also like if not putting a bullet through its heart, then at least like pissing on its grave. Mm-hmm. It also starts off with, I think, one of the best opening sequences, God. certainly of any Western, but just any movie in general in yeah. which um, three men Three men who are immediately coded as no good yeah. <laughs> uh, are waiting for a train yep. to pull in a station. I mean, it's also, a, it's also a great movie about, you know, the railroad and the coming of civilization in the West. But tellingly, they're waiting for a train to pull into the station. And there clearly is somebody on that train that they have business with. Mm-hmm. And as they are kind of waiting for whomever is on that train to step off so that they can gun this person down they are methodically picked off one by one uh by somebody who's named who's aptly named harmonica why is he named harmonica you ask because he plays a harmonica and he's played by charles fucking bronson yep uh was clint eastwood offered the role yes 
Did he want to stop doing Westerns at that point? At least in Italy. Is casting Charles Bronson the greatest piece of casting in this film? No, it's the second best piece of casting. Fonda! Because then you meet the guy that's been pulling the strings and has tried to get this person killed. Uh, It's Henry Fonda. His name is Frank. And he is a rat bastard. Mm -hmm. It was such a genius piece of casting for Sergio Leone to, to cast this person who had been this kind of paternal figure who had played Abe Lincoln. He played Wyatt Earp. Yeah. He'd played uh, Tom Joad, yeah. you know, and here he is gunning down kids. Yeah. Not, not, not figuratively. No, if you haven't seen the no. picture, literally puts a bullet <laughs> in the kid. And, and essentially this guy, Frank is, um, is trying to take over some land that will allow the railroad to build further into this, into this Western town. And uh, at one point, he gets rid of the competition and the competition's widow shows up. It's played by Claudia Cardinale, who has never looked more Mm -hmm. gorgeous on screen. And that is certainly saying something. Mm -hmm. She was a world-class screen beauty. And she just looks absolutely, even in like the dirty, dusty West, she just looks, she just glows. And you soon find out that uh, Harmonica has, uh, he's got business with Frank. Mm-hmm. and this unfinished business that he is very keen to finish. And Frank can't figure out who this person is or why he's killing his men or, and why he seems to be so hell-bent on coming towards coming towards a, a, a showdown, a kind of final standoff between the two of them. And the film does have this really beautiful epic scale, but it's also incredibly uh, elegaic. It's, it's so, it's so, it almost feels like a eulogy in so many ways. And it's got this amazing, what I think is actually one of Emilio Morricone's best scores. Yeah. Um, there is a sequence in which when Claudia Cardinale arrives into town, that the camera is sort of following her through and then sort of lifts up and goes over the roof oh. uh, of the train station that she's arrived in so that you see this entire kind of bustling Western town right as Morricone's score hits like its most, like kind of its emotional crescendo. And it's just one of those, like I'm just getting goosebumps talking mm. about it. It's, it's that kind of thing where you're like, oh, right, that's what cinema looks like. That's yeah. that's cinema. Do I need to give you a definition of cinema? That <laughs> moment right there, like it will yeah. stand in just about, I, I would say it's my second favorite moment of cinema. Just pure uncut 10 cc's unfiltered cinema of 1968. And we'll get to the first in a second. But it's really just one of those movies where, um, you know, even the kind of, fable-like feel of the title once upon a time in the west um you're already looking in the rearview mirror Mm. and yet it's done in this way in which it's not this kind of sentimental look at the past and it's also not a cynical look at the past it's this weird beautiful blending of the two that i don't even think leone was able to kind of capture that's that's amazing no you're right and and the the thing that i that i love so much about the fonda casting this is a story that's been told often but i'll just tell it here for anyone who hasn't heard it i most recently read it in scott amon's incredible uh fonda jimmy stewart dual biography um was that you know when, when fonda took the role which was a risk he had not played a villain ever before 
um, you know, he showed up and and had had given tremendous thought to how to alter his appearance, how to how to look like a different man. And, and the, the key piece of which was that he had had himself fitted for brown contact lenses that Henry Fonda had, the, you know, was famous for his 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 crystal blue eyes, you know, and he felt like, well, that that's too pure for this guy, you know, so he, he came ready to wear these brown contact lenses and, and Leone shot him down immediately, you know, as respectfully as he could, because he respected them so much. He said, Oh no, 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 Mr. Fonda, I, I, I must see your blue eyes in color. That is the power of the characters to see your famous blue eyes embodying such evil. And he was right. <laughs> the man knew what he was talking about. It, it, it is powerful to, to see him as we're used to seeing him, but, but playing this rat bastard. Yeah, and I, it, it it just, I mean, you heard the name, the iconic characters that I just named off, yeah. you know, earlier in talking about this film. The fact that, you know, you've got all that wonderful screen baggage, mm-hmm. that persona that you get to bring to the thing, and then to be able to kind of turn it on its head that way, yeah. and so powerfully. And also, it's just, it's just a great performance by yeah. Henry Fonda. Like, it's not even like... Oh, you know, the good guy has suddenly become evil or, you know, the white hats now become a black hat. Yeah. It's it's really like he's committed to this. Like once he kind of got on board, yeah. he got on board in a huge way. And it also makes I I, I hesitate to talk about any death scenes and pe- in films people may have not seen, but I will see there I will say there is a death scene in that film that because of the actor who was playing it mm-hmm. and because of the the last moment of this character's life that you see on screen is portrayed the way it is that it actually, I don't know. It just, it just hits that much harder. Yeah. Agreed. Okay. Well, speaking of evil, uh, what is the fourth film on your top five for 1968? Yeah. It's funny. Every time I bring this film up now, uh, I will go, uh, yeah, Rosemary's Baby, uh, that that movie about the devil, and they say and people will sometimes say yes, and also Satan is in it. <laughs> Paramount Pictures presents Mia Farrow in a William Castle production, Rosemary's Baby, co-starring John Cassavetes, written for the screen and directed by Roman Polanski. I realize it's become virtually impossible to talk about any Roman Polanski film now because then you have to talk about Roman Polanski Mm -hmm. and he is somebody for whom there are no shortages of opinions and no shortages, sorry, no shortage of passionate opinions. Mm -hmm. Um, Pro and con. He's definitely, there are divisive figures and then there is, there's Roman Polanski, but Mm -hmm. to look at this film, to attempt to look at this film apart from that, Mm -hmm. to try and, take that legacy off its shoulders for one moment and just look at it as a movie in 1968 that, that suggests that has a very specific way of thinking about show business. Mm. That has a very specific way of thinking about urban living Mm -hmm. and has a very specific way about that senior citizen that lives down the hall from you that keeps (laughs) making you this weird tea and something seems a little strange and off about them. Yeah. I mean, it is one of the, it is one of the greatest films about not being able to trust anybody. It Mm. is a, it is one of the greatest gaslighting films of all time. That's not named gaslight. Yes. It uh, is an incredible film about paranoia which was something Roman Polanski was more than familiar with. Mm-hmm. And um, 
and a great movie about really feeling like there's a sort of free floating evil in the world and it doesn't matter whether you give it a judeo-christian name it's just the idea that that it's it's there and kind of just in it's almost like it's in the water supply or although in this case it's in somebody's <laughs> uterus this is the film that mia farrow will be forever remembered by yep. uh she's she's got the mia farrow pixie cut she is you know coming off of peyton place she absolutely looks luminescent on screen and yet nobody gives better am i going crazy face mm-hmm. than mia farrow does in this movie her and her husband played by john cassavetes again another really great piece of casting yeah uh are living in this living in this building i think it's the dakota isn't it yeah i asked the new york film expert because he's here (laughs) they're living in the dakota and uh he wants to be an actor they're trying to get pregnant because she really wants to be a mother he's focused on his career there are some weird neighbors in the building with them as as any New Yorker will tell you, sure. is certainly a gamble you take. And he seems to have how can I put this? They want something from her. Mm-hmm. He, the John Cassavetes characters, wants something from them. Mm-hmm. They both get what they want. Mm-hmm. The only person who doesn't quite get what they bargained for is Rosemary. Yeah. And the way that Polanski kind of films her, what seems to be a kind of psychic or like a psychological breakdown. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like psychic cracking that she goes through and how he's filming this stuff that could be in her imagination, but might not be. And seems very surreal and kind of psychedelic late sixties. And yet also feels very like primal and uncomfortable uh, is, is really wonderful. There's a very famous the very famous scene that people talk about where Polanski is filming. I think it's, I can't remember. Is it Ruth Gordon? I think Ruth Gordon's on a bed. Uh, and Mia Farrow's character is trying to, they're, they're talking on the phone and they're on the bed and they're kind of obscured by the doorframe and the way the camera is positioned, you know, Mia Farrow's trying to like see who's, who's talking or what she's saying in the thing. And when the scene played in theaters, allegedly the entire audience moved to the right as one mm. to try and see through the doorframe about what was happening. Wow. And this is somebody who understands the That's psychological power. use yeah. of composition in the framing. And all of that kind of comes into play when you finally get to the last 10 minutes of the movie, wow. which if people know nothing about Rosemary's baby, know the last 10 minutes of the movie. I think, um, I think the word iconic is vastly overused. Wildly. Wildly, vastly overused. And yet, um, it is hard to think of something else, another adjective to describe the look on Mia Farrow's face mm-hmm. after having given birth to her child and looks in the crib to see this baby for the very first time mm-hmm. and does what I looks like a silent scream. Her eyes go wide and her mouth goes open and she puts her hand over it. And it is this look of abject horror. Mm-hmm. And then you get, of course, the famous line of like, he has his father's eyes. Mm-hmm. In which you really begin to understand exactly what's happened. And yeah, I mean, it's one of those movies where 
it's such a great urban gothic horror film it's such a great satanic panic horror film it's such a great like the entire notion of like it's like body horror Mm -hmm. but in a way that's like that you don't associate with body horror Mm -hmm. although as i've been told by many people who would know firsthand all pregnancy is body horror (laughs) you're right uh yeah and it's just it's it's a great 68 movie where you really feel like society is coming apart at the seams to the point where your neighbors being a coven that are attempting to bring Satan back into the world through you doesn't seem that far-fetched compared to everything that's happening outside your door. Yeah. Well said. Um, yeah. The thing that's, that I think is sort of astonishing about Rosemary's baby, which is a movie I've seen a lot of times. Um, I think even if you're watching it for the first time, you know what it's about, you know what the payoff is, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. but still it will shock you. Like when they get there, it's, I'm still shocked when they get there and I've seen the movie, you know, 10 times before. Yeah. It's so astonishing and it's so skillfully done and, and all the pieces fall into place, but it's, it comes together so forcefully that it sort of knocks you, knocks the wind out of you. Um, the only other thing I would add to this is that one of my favorite things about Rosemary's baby in 1968 is that, um, when I was doing the research for the book, I stumbled upon, uh, you know, I was looking through posters and the, Paramount's two big hits for 1968 were Rosemary's Baby and The Odd Couple. Mm-hmm. And so as a, a studio often would, they did, um, uh, you know, sometimes they would package, you know, the second run of their big hits together. And so there is, they they put this package together. You can find a poster for the double bill of Rosemary's Baby and The Odd Couple. And on one hand, it's a very strange pairing. And on the other hand, they're both implicitly about what you will go to to get into a really great New York apartment. <laughs> um, Dave, what is the fifth and final movie on your 68 top five? I'm going to introduce it through a piece of music that hopefully will not get you guys sued. Nope. Bum bum. Bum bum. Bum bum. First time on television, Stanley Kubrick's mind-blowing epic journey, 2001, A Space Odyssey. Now an NBC big event. Astounding entertainment starring Pierre Delay and Gary Lockwood. 2001, A Space Odyssey. Tonight at 8, 7 central time on the NBC big event. I mean, has ever a, a piece of classical music been been retconned no. to better effect? I no. mean, I'm, I'm sure there has been. Like, I right. can't think of any offhand. Right. Uh, 2001 A Space Odyssey. May I say showing up in the correct space if you are alphabetizing films. Oh boy, here we go. <laughs> so uh, we recently, as as Jason will will tell you, we, uh, the the good people at Rolling Stone, recently did a, uh, a science fiction list, a science fiction mm-hmm. movie list about the top 150 science fiction movies of all time. According, according to us. Yes, the, the only, the only opinions that really matter. <laughs> exactly. Thank you. Well said. Yeah. Um, no, no shortage of opinions nope. about that list. No shortage of opinions about where things um, ranked. No shortage of opinions about, you know, why a Soviet science fiction film was the second thing and Star Wars wasn't. Mm-hmm. Oddly enough, it felt like a lot of people didn't seem to have issue with our number one. Right. Uh, I also had to, I mean, again, this is a film that I've seen countless times at countless different parts of uh, and stages of my life and it has meant 
countless different things to me over the years. And I, I went back to, because I was writing the blurb for it, for the list, and I went back to rewatch it because I knew it was like, oh, this is going to be one of the longer blurbs. Let me just make sure that, mm-hmm. you know, I can recite this film basically in my head by memory, but let me just watch it again. Um, and yeah, it was, it was just, I was so, it was just so ecstatic to be sitting there rewatching this film. Mm-hmm. I mean, and I've seen, I've seen it virtually every which way you can see a film except on your phone. Right. <laughs> and um, whether I'm seeing it in a theater in a 70 millimeter print, uh, which the Museum of the Moving Image has been wonderful about bringing back as much as it can, versus you know seeing it on a, a very small screen, like a small TV screen, it is always one of those movies that the, the visuals knock me out, the s- incredibly singular way of telling a story mm-hmm. that it uses locks me out the ideas inherent in it knock me out the poetry of it knocks me out i mean there's an entire you know the the whole strauss waltz thing of the ships in space yeah. is just amazing and kubrick himself had said in a later interview that you know um the only thing that really distinguishes cinema from all the other art forms is editing it is really the power of juxtaposition it is the it's the kuleshov mm-hmm. experiment you know mm-hmm. it's the russian montage it's the idea of taking two ideas and putting them together to make a third thing and this is the number one moment of just pure put it in a syringe and just inject it into my veins cinema of 1968 for me and maybe every other year that i've been alive in which the notion of cutting from a bone to a spaceship Mm. i mean it's become a cliche now and it's been parodied and it's been done a million different ways and yet every single time i watch that cut yeah i'm 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 just flabbergasted by it i'm flabbergasted by how much information is in those two shots put together how much how much ground is being covered how much humanity is being charted and chronicled in those two shots and uh, and that's before the robot goes crazy. Right, Jason. <laughs> right. That's before you start to realize that the only person you've really seen showing emotions in this thing is an artificial intelligence. Right. And, and which I say, if any artificial intelligences, of course, are listening to this podcast, <laughs> I, for one, welcome our digital overlords. <laughs> and it's just... Yeah, I mean, in a way, like, I don't know what else you can say about this film that hasn't been said a million different ways by a million different people, except that uh, I'm I'm continually, I'm, I'm continually fascinated by it just as an object of art. I'm continually fascinated by it as I get older and my opinions start to change and I become less tolerant of some things and much more sympathetic to other things as as the fundamentals of who I am you know, shift in the ground a little bit. And I hopefully for the better, hopefully in a, in a state, a spirit of growth that I can look to that film and think, um, and think that, you know, we, we may not need a huge black monolith to sign off on us leveling up as a species. We probably do, Hmm. but in a way it's the sort of film in which you watch, you think how how far we as a species still need to go 
um, even though we've come so far. And then you start to think about how far you have come as a moviegoer. Yeah. And how much ground has been charted from that, from the first time you see this film until you until you watch it today. I just, I love marker films like that. And I, I just, and I love this film. I just could not love it more. I think it's as close to as, you know, a quote unquote perfect movie as there is. Yeah. Yeah. Um, we've of course seen this one many times. Mike actually checked out, um, uh, I give, I give Mike an alternate assignment for, uh, for, for the watch list this time. Mike, which, which version of 2001 did you watch? I watched the Soderbergh cut. Yeah. <laughs> I'm surprised you found it. First of all, just like shout out to this guy's parents for making a kid so fucking arrogant he thought he could recut 2001. <laughs> like that is a sense of self, boy. I want to tell you, yes. his parents need to write a book. So if you don't know what we're talking about, a few years ago, Steven Soderbergh re-edited 2001 and just put it up on his website until he got a cease and desist from Warner Brothers. Until he got a cease and desist from Warner Brothers, according to him, Ten minutes later, <laughs> I recently I recently moderated a Q and A with Soderbergh when he showed his new cut of uh, Kafka. Oh shit! Okay. Yes. Okay. Right up the street at the Nighthawk, and uh, somebody brought up when it came time for the audience questions. Somebody brought up the recut. Oh wow! And it was funny because I'd always heard that he recut it, and the first I kind of had the same reaction that you did, where you were just like, "Oh yes!" And then why don't you recut rules of the game while you're at it? <laughs> and he, and he, Rashomon sure could use a new cut, Stephen. How about if I take a shot at out of sight? How does that sound? (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) And then the way he described it was, he goes, well, so for people who didn't get a chance to see it in those 10 minutes before (laughs) Warner Brothers took it down, he goes, it's essentially the entire film recut from the perspective of Hal. Yeah. And I have never wanted to like run out and go try and find a movie (laughs) as much as the Soderbergh cut of 2001. You know what? I'm going to start a hashtag right now. Release the Soderbergh cut. <laughs> there you go. Of 2001. Come on, internet. How was it, Mike? It's really great, dude. It's really fucking great. And I have to say, like, if it's the only version of the movie you've ever seen, like, it was still worth, it's very much worth watching. You know, I think that, like, knowing that it's from the perspective of how really does make a big difference because there's, you know, he goes back to the, he goes back to the eye. Mm-hmm. Uh, at times that it's not actually in the movie. Mm-hmm. You know, he goes, he sort of, uh, he uses that as a sort of a character and you see how learning, which is in the movie, but he actually adds to it. Mm-hmm. And so knowing that really does change the, you know, the actual viewing of the movie. But it's still like, I mean, it's just all the set pieces, dude, the fucking thing in the moon, you know, I mean, just, it just is like, it's the most incredible achievement of filmmaking Ever. I mean, I don't, you know, and like pure, no computer film. It's just everything is so incredible about it. And he what he's really good at as an editor is is timing. Mm. You know, Mm -hmm. he moves faster than almost everybody else. Mm-hmm. And and he didn't cut this movie up into, you know, it's not Ocean's Eleven. It's still 2001, right? Yeah. But he actually does have a different sense of the timing of the edits hmm. than the original does. And it's and of course, having seen the original, like you said, in every way you can see it, but a phone. They got it. They run the seventy millimeter here every chance they get. Also, I don't know mm-hmm. if it just goes around from theater to theater, but you know, having seen it and and really just and also, I really like the way you described it. Growing into being able to appreciate right. the pace of the movie, yeah, right. Not having yeah. appreciated as a younger man, 
Sure. You know, now like I have a real uh, a real affinity and, and adoration even for the pacing of that movie. So to see Soderbergh come make it his own while maintaining what what it is, what it needs is a fat is I really enjoyed it, dude. And, you know, I think, you know, if they take it down after 10 minutes, that's an excuse to go steal it, isn't it? There you we know, go. I've taken that position before. Steal this book, the movie. <laughs> Hell All yeah. right. David, thank you so much for that splendid top five. Uh, really beautiful pieces of, of, of pure cinema. Just just like this is what movies are about. Um, let's find out about the big doings of the entertainment business in the year 1968. Here's Mike. With the Hollywood Minute. Hollywood freaks from the Hollywood God, what a year, dude. This is. My brain is just like melted and been reformed several times in this episode already. Okay. <laughs> Oscar loved Oliver with the stage musical adaptation of Dickens' Oliver Twist, picking up Academy Awards for Best Picture and Best Director for Carol Reed. I don't care how good that movie is. That just sounds insane. <laughs> After the conversation we've been uh, having, yeah, he yeah, won yeah. for this, but not the third man. So, yeah. you know, none of this makes any sense. Dave, uh, any thoughts on Oliver? Exclamation mark. Well, the studio system hadn't been dead yet. Yes. I mean, you know, everybody talks about the late 60s being this, you know, radical time for filmmaking and the, you know, the Midnight Cowboy, the Easy Rider, the In the Heat of the Night, The Graduate, the 2001 A Space Odyssey. But it's also the, it's also the era of, Dr. Doolittle. Yes. And the era of, you know, Star, the Blake Edwards, Julie Andrews musical that, you know, notoriously did not do well. And yeah. it and it is also the the year of Oliver, the, the era of Oliver, except instead of those films going to a watery grave, uh, this film won this film won against some crazy competition too. Yeah. And it just kind of goes to show you that there's a very conservative, old-fashioned, nostalgic strain in the Academy, and thus has ever been. Like the, everybody talks now about, like how could Green Book win? You know, in the year right. of the year of Roma, or how could right. this win? You know, Dances with Wolves wins in the year of Goodfellas, and you know, the, it, Oliver is one of those movies where you're like, yeah, for mm-hmm. for some reason, people weren't quite ready for that much change. Yeah, and so they've got to give it to. Um, fucking Oliver. <laughs> big show, uh, big showboat and musical. What else happened at the Oscars, Mike? There was a rare tie in the Best Actress category with Katherine Hepburn winning her third Oscar for Lion in Winter and Barbara Streisand winning her first for Funny Girl. They just, they couldn't decide, so they were like, fuck it, give it to both of them. We're going <laughs> to yeah. go one old school, one new school. Here yeah. we are, right? Hello, gorgeous. Ruth Gordon won Best Supporting Actress for Rosemary's Baby. Jack Albertson, better known to our generation as Grandpa Joe and Willy Wonka, won himself a Best Supporting Actor for The Subject Was Roses. Never heard of that one. And Cliff Robertson won Best Actor for Charlie. Never seen that one. Robertson's win was sneered at by some industry observers who accused him of campaigning too aggressively for the prize. If they only knew. (laughs) Yeah. Imagine that. Apparently those complaints didn't take. No. Funny Girl was the year's box office champ with 2001 a strong second and the odd couple in third place. Other big hits included Bullet, Planet of the Apes, and Rosemary's Baby. Couple of good ones in there. Any favorites among uh, that bunch, Dave? I'm I'm actually surprised by, by how many multitudes Planet of the Apes contains. Mm-hmm. 
It is. It is. It is most certainly a camp classic. Mm-hmm. You most, damn dirty ape! You did get your paws off of you, damn dirty ape. It is another one of those films that has a, a one of those kind of shocking gotcha moments too yep. that has been parodied so much that you, it's easy to kind of forget how you know jaw droppingly what the fuck it was when yep. you saw it in 1968. It is uh, one of the most obvious beat you over the head allegories you can mm-hmm. ever see, and in a way also one of the smartest and sharpest mm-hmm. simultaneously and yeah it's it's funny it was a film that i watched and endle- i watched all those planet of the apes movies endlessly growing up because again 19 the 70s this sure. is what you did sure when you were a movie mad kid you glommed onto those films uh and then to kind of you know go back and see it now i think i watched it for the first time in a long time about five years ago and i still found myself cringing at some of the line readings and i still found myself slapping my forehead over some of the more obvious points. And I still found myself, you know, amazed that they made that film at all mm-hmm. in both a, in both a horrid and a good way. Yeah. There we go. Big year for short Kings who could fit in a monkey outfit. Yes, indeed. <laughs> Big industry story of the year was the introduction of the MPAA rating system effective yeah. November 1st, 1968. This voluntary film rating system finally at long last put an end to the wildly outdated Hayes Code, allowing filmmakers more freedom to explore adult subject matter on film. The uh, That is like such a dictionary definition. God, well, we've had so many complaints about the MPAA, but yeah, we're going to keep it simple for this new story, aren't there we? There we go. <laughs> the original breakdown was four ratings, G, M, R, and X. M was renamed GP in 1970 and then renamed again to PG in 1972. D- why did that happen? Is there the, a pencil sketch of, of that? I mean, the, the M stood for mature, but that was, people were having trouble. It was like too mature? Yes, exactly. It was and like so, overdoing it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then GP stood for something else. I forget what. And then they then they said parental guidance was just the easiest abbreviation. So they changed it. to. But like GP is confusing. Like, what is G? What is, is right, it, right, which right. Which one exactly. was for kids? Da, 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 da. Yeah. All right. G means you can see for general audiences and GP means you have to see it with your general practitioner. There we go. <laughs> <laughs> you need there a doctor to accompany you. Wasn't and wasn't the mature thing also part of when the Roman Catholic Church was... Oh, was kind right. of mandating what yes. it was acceptable for Catholics when, to see and not to and see. And when they made the list so you know which movies were dirty and you should go see them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Exactly. Something like that. <laughs> the What's Where the Moon is Blue became yes. you know a massive hit. Exactly. Uh, Sub Cardinal in New York was like, oh, you can't go see this. It's it's M for mature. There we go. I'm going to go on YouTube and start labeling all the anti-vax movies. This movie's rated GP. See it with your general <laughs> practitioner. The first film to receive an X rating was Jack Cardiff's The Girl on a Motorcycle. Yes, 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 indeed. That's a retelling of the Lady Godiva story, right? (laughs) Something like that. With Marianne Faithful. Notable 1968 births included John Singleton and his Boys in the Hood star Cuba Gooding Jr. chasing Amy Starr and inspiration Joey Lauren Adams. Directors Adam McKay, Robert Rodriguez, Guy Ritchie, Joe Cornish, and Chad Stahelski. Brad Packers, Molly Ringwald, and Anthony Michael Hall. Actors Josh Brolin, Aaron Eckhart. Timothy Oliphant, Billy Crudup, Michael Stolbarg. This is like, this is quite a list, Jason. Yeah. Really. This sounds like a movie that nobody, like a holiday movie from 2006. <laughs> Terry Crews, Eric Bana, Daniel Day Kim, Will Smith, Hugh Jackman, Sam Rockwell, Tracy Morgan, Owen Wilson, and Brendan Fraser. Woo. Yeah. 
And actresses Patricia Arquette, Kristen Chenoweth, Gillian Anderson, Deborah Messing, Anna Gunn, Naomi Watts, Tisha Campbell, Lucy Liu, Parker fucking Posey, and this is the right word for it, notoriously, Tracy Lords was born in 68 too. Mm-hmm. If you don't know what I'm talking about, you probably shouldn't Google it. That's your Hollywood Minute. All right, Dave Fair, you ready to do a lightning round? Sure, let's go. All right, you know how it works. I'm going to feed you a list of titles pulled from John Willis's Screen World Film Annual for 1968, which I did bring all the way to Brooklyn with me. Uh, you can comment briefly on each or pass if you wish. Sure. And here we go. John Cassavetes' Faces. Uh, not as good as The Killing of a Chinese Bookie, but better than Big Trouble. George A. Romero's Night of the Living Dead. Still the golden standard for any movies involving zombies. Period. Full stop. We had two early pictures from Brian De Palma in 68. Greetings and Murder a la Mod. Murder a la Mod is a great uh, aperitif. Hmm. Whereas Greetings, I'm a bit of a De Palma agnostic, mm. to be perfectly honest. Maybe even a De Palma atheist because... Mm. Uh, he is one of those directors that people love for various reasons, and I've never quite been able to get on board with it. But I remember seeing Greetings and being like, oh, my God, this is phenomenal. Greetings and its follow-up film, Hi, Mom. And I remember thinking, if only he had stuck with this and didn't try to be uh, like do this, his kind of postmodern you know, movies are all about seeing and watching, and then you're watching and seeing, and then this and that, and kind of taking... You know, I know the thing, the knock to Palm is always like, oh, he's like a light Hitchcock, whatever. But the idea is really he's a postmodern Hitchcock and he's mm-hmm. taking all that stuff and kind of putting it through a Poma blender. And uh, he's somebody I admire, but don't love. And Greetings is a movie I love. Uh, promising young filmmaker named Martin Scorsese put out his debut feature. Who's that knocking at my door? An absolutely great introduction because you can already see where this person's going to go. The opening scene is... Um, religious iconography, rock and roll music, and pasta preparation. Like, he's putting everything in, in in the very first scene of his first movie. He's not hiding anything. Burt Lancaster as the swimmer. Vastly underrated. Vastly, vastly right. underrated. It's a John Cheever adaptation, right? Is it Cheever? So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I believe so. Yeah, absolutely great. Wonderful allegorical movie. Um, really great Frank Perry direction. Mm. One of those, another one of those movies you couldn't find. Yeah. for ages and then when i finally saw it at the roxy theater in san francisco where i was living in my 20s because they had done a very brief revival of it there um i was knocked out by it great great picture uh from the recently departed norman jewison the thomas crown affair it's wonderful because it's one of those movies that again like you know it used to be like the sunday night abc movie all the time and they would show it cut up and stuff and edited for content and you know i would always kind of watch five minutes of it because i love steve mcqueen and i think faye dunaway is beautiful and a wonderful actress and was like, yeah, whatever. And it wasn't until later when I watched it and really got to key in, especially to the editing. Everyone talks about the, the editing, mm-hmm. now, especially the chess scene. Um, I appreciate it so much more. It's a, it's not a great heist movie. It's not even a great Steve McQueen movie. And it's not a great Norman Jewison movie. And yet it is a really great 1968 movie. <laughs> well said. Uh, we had two from Peter Sellers in 68. The Party and I Love You, Alice B. Toklas. I love Peter Sellers. I love Peter Sellers. I love Peter Sellers. Neither of those films have aged the least bit well. Nope. <laughs> Romeo and Juliet. Ooh, yeah. That's another can of worms to open That's up. Another can of worms. Uh, yeah, I mean, this was one of those movies that was very much, you know, Fisher Price, my first Shakespeare. Sure. 
for a lot of people. I remember they showed this to us in this, I think it was a school auditorium. Of course. It was an elementary school. Because and- somehow no school administrator ever remembered the boobs. <laughs> they all forgot. Yes. Um, and so I think it's a, you know, it's a, it's a fine screen adaptation of, of a Shakespeare play that I've never really, that I've always admired, but not loved. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, it's the idea of casting actual teenagers in these parts was inspired until it wasn't. There we go. Let's rapid fire through some of the psychedelic pictures of 68. Yeah, man. Psych out. Oh God. A great Roger Corman, uh, AIP film. Yeah. Great. Uh, great Jack Nicholson performance in there too. Very much wild in the streets. Uh, yeah. Uh, 14 or fight baby. 14 or fight. <laughs> oh God. I need to go. I haven't seen that in so long. I need to go back to that. It was one of those movies that Danny Perry brings up in his books a lot. And another one where I finally saw it and was like, oh, this is fucked up. So great and fucked up. R.I.P. Hal Holbrook. There we go. Um, Bob Rafelson's Head. Another vastly underrated film. Um, another great time capsule piece of the late 60s. And absolutely amazing if you grew up watching the monkeys and reruns the way I did. Mm-hmm. And then accidentally saw it. Accidentally stoned. Uh, and then perhaps the most ill-advised film of this group, Otto Preminger's Skidoo. <laughs> Skidoo is one of those, it's like such a perfect storm of fuck, yep. that movie. It is such, I cannot, I can't believe, and, and people, if you have not seen Skidoo, in which Groucho Marx takes acid and Otto Preminger try, directs a bunch of scenes on boats, it yeah. is even crazier and wild and more batshit than you've heard. And I guess this one will qualify too, Richard Lester's Petulia. It's funny because... People have talked about it being a really great snapshot of, you know, Hate Ashbury and the Summer of Love because it's filmed in San Francisco mm-hmm. and the Grateful Dead show up at one point in a scene. And, you know, Julia Christie is at her most Julius Christiest. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's actually a very beautiful, poetic, funny, sad film. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And it, it, it tries to get at the whole kind of generation gap and the, the, you know, the appeal of the counterculture to an older generation and the appeal of the older generation the people in the counterculture who were looking for mother and father figures, which were abs- actually many. Uh, it, it's just, it's, it's a really kind of beautiful movie. And we've gone over, but I'm throwing in one more Barbarella. Oh, how can't, how can you not love? Barbarella? <laughs> I mean, this is one of those movies that understands its source material, not wisely, but too well. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> well said excellent lightning round sir where can people follow you on social media oh god is social media still a thing i guess i don't know uh or they could just go to your author page on rolling stone maybe that's the way yeah let's do that because you're not going to get anything better than that i mean i'm not not, i'm not saying that's that good what you're going to find but at least on social media you know i'm just it always just feels like you're blathering and reacting to the moment and getting into fights and you know screaming or being flatulent into the wind where at least with the my authors page you'll read pieces that I've put a little bit of time and a lot of caffeine into. There we go. I am Fun City Cinema on Instagram, Jason Dash Bailey on Blue Sky and Letterboxd, where you can find under my list the top fives for every damn episode of the show. Mike, where can people find you? I am at Brainwash Lib on Twitter and at Fifth Column Films on Blue Sky. And of course, if you like this show and you think other people might like it too, please, please, please leave us a rating and or a review on your podcatcher of choice. There is a, a, a comical overload of movie podcasts out there, so your recommendations really do help us out. Mike, before we go, what is your favorite film of 19? 19- 1968. Uh, I'm just going to say documentaries. There's so many great, like, <laughs> there are. there's a lot of great docs that came out in 68 and what's, and they feel so 
modern, I don't know, I mean, not sort of like pre-reality TV modern, you sure. know, but they really feel much differently than the documentaries from 1965. Mm -hmm. For the most part, the balance has started to really shift. Mm -hmm. um, there's the Agnes Varda Black Panthers movie that's just great. You know, when, when Kathleen Cleaver proves in like one 90 second bit why women should run every revolutionary <laughs> movement from here forward. Uh, you know, Les Blank has a movie. You know how I feel about him. I do indeed. His movie's called God Respects Us When He Work, But He Loves Us When We Dance. <laughs> Once again, this guy is the best fucking titler ever. Yes. Uh, but I think my favorite movie from 68 is probably Mingus. Um, it's about Charles Mingus and, you know, his music is the closest thing to sort of like what my brain sounds like. I don't really know how else to explain it, yeah. but his music just like fits naturally in my head in the way that your favorite sweater does or something. I can't explain. He's my favorite musician. It's something that's just is sort of beyond language. And then you go and watch this movie and like he's being evicted from his apartment and his five-year-old daughter is there and he's just got all these guns and he's like giving her wine and he just seems completely fucking insane. Mm -hmm. But also he's talking a lot about race and a lot of the stuff that he's talking about really makes sense still. Mm -hmm. It's just like, it's such a confusing. And then they just cut to him like playing bass and just like jamming <laughs> <laughs> and like, it is such a confusing film, but it is such a really wonderful portrait of this person who just sort of, I don't know who he is in my head yeah. because I just sort of listen to the music. And whenever I go dip into who he is as a person, it just seems to run so counter to the music for some reason. It's just a great sort of intellectual practice. I don't know if this movie would sort of appeal to anybody else in the same way that it does to me. But goddamn, that Mingus movie is good. And if you don't like it, go watch the Agnes Varda movie. It's also very good. Michael, can I tell you how happy I am that you brought up the documentaries? Because three of my favorite documentaries of all time, and three of that I would I would argue are the most influential of, you know, the 1960s and onward, are all in 68. Because you get Emilio D'Antonio's Year of the Pig. Mm -hmm. You get Frederick Wiseman's High School. Mm -hmm. And you get Pennebaker's Monterey Pop. <laughs> Holy shit. All in one year. I mean, that's what I'm talking about, yeah. dude. The documentaries from this year are wild. And yeah. they are in the same way that people are about to start talking about Easy Rider. Mm -hmm. You know, they're these guys, they, they're doing this. These guys, Agnes Varda, I've mentioned her movie seven times. These, they are, you know, redefining, yeah. you know, Les Blank is creating something that yeah. that people are just catching up to now. Yeah. You know, yeah. how about you, buddy? Um, You know, I gave it a lot of thought because there are a lot of good ones. And I'm going to go with Peter Bogdanovich's Targets, um, which, I, you know, is as fun to talk about as it is to watch. And it's tremendously <laughs> pleasurable to watch. But when you find out the backstory on this, that this was basically Roger Corman and him doing the five obstructions, that he was like, OK, yes, you can make your feature filmmaking debut, but you have to use X number of minutes from the terror, this movie that everybody hates, that makes no fucking sense. Um, you have to use the three days that I have left over from that movie with Boris Karloff. Uh, you have to somehow find a way to make that work and you have to do it under this budget. And Bogdanovich brilliantly comes up with this idea of casting Karloff as basically himself, um, an aging, aged, fading movie star uh, by having him on a promotional tour for his latest bad movie, which is where you get your clips from the terror. And then the idea of juxtaposing these very old school ideas of what is scary with this extremely contemporary idea 
of random gun violence of a Charles Whitman style shooter, uh, you know, taking over the city and coming, you know, head to head at this drive-in theater where they're having the premiere of this movie. A brilliant sort of realization, Dave, of the stuff you're talking about, about old school Hollywood and new school ideas sort of uneasily coexisting in the cinema of this particular year it's also just like a really fucking well-made movie this is you know this is him early on he's hungry it's got that first film energy of like i don't know if i'm gonna get to do this again so i'm gonna do every cool thing every trick i can think of i'm throwing into this um and also a really great peter bogdanovich performance like kind of playing himself (laughs) in the movie in a really entertaining way because that was the role he typically played best was peter bogdanovich um it has it it was sort of seen at the time as an exploitation movie paramount bought it but didn't know what the fuck to do with it so nobody really saw it then but in recent years it's been more uh universally acclaimed it's part of the criterion collection now and it belongs there so that is that is my recommendation thank you again day fear Thank you. Thank you for having me on for the longest episode of my life. <laughs> Apologies for my long-windedness. <laughs> thank you, Jason. And thank you for listening. It was a very good year.